Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded view in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 11th, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-11. to In today's text, St. Paul teaches the Corinthians concerning the work of the Spirit for the good of the whole church. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Always good to be here. Talk to us about some context today, Pastor Johnson. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul's been doing leading up to chapter 12? Right. That's that's exactly what's key. You can't read this. I mean, you never can read the Bible passages out of context, but it's especially critical because I think with 1 Corinthians, perhaps more than many other epistles, Paul's really building on something here. Um, and so it's probably actually good to go back and review since we're already so far advance go back to the the very first chapter um in his uh in his thanksgiving because some of this is going to get sort of uh echoed in our text today he says i give thanks to my god always for you because of the grace of god that was given you in christ jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge and so paul's already affirming the fact that you know the corinthians have been they've been filled up they've been enriched uh, they're not lacking anything. I think he's going to go on and say that. He says, um, and even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think he's kind of planted the seeds here that we're going to see kind of blossom and grow in chapter 12, that they're not missing out on anything. Um, he's already confirmed that form. The, the problem is, is not that they're missing anything from the spirit, but the problem is, is that they are they have the wrong attitude towards it, uh, towards these gifts which don't come from them at all. And so, um, in that same passage in chapter one, kind of culminates then finally with his appeal to unity. It says, "I appeal to you, brothers," and the ESV reads. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. And I'd like to suggest, I'm sure somebody did way back when, but um, literally the text says that you all say the same thing. In fact, there's a, uh, that's where we get the word confession from, to say the same thing. And so, but this is not an isolated exhortation that he's making just for the first chapter. He is, um, he's saying this, throughout the entire book. And um, and so the problem then that we see already from the first chapter, but we're going to revisit now in, the, in chapter 12, the problem is not that they didn't have the gifts. Um, the problem is that they were using them divisively. And this has been, I mean, we've seen example after example after example of this all through 1 Corinthians. So, so hopefully this is beginning to sound like a broken record, but it's important that we understand that this is this is the pattern that Paul's really addressing. 
you know, um, they've been divided over teachers in chapter one and the teachings as we saw in chapter two and chapter three over, um, over sexual immorality and lawsuits and, uh, and marriage and all of this business about, uh, you know, reclining at pagan altars. And so finally we see, um, and we saw that this, this division manifested itself even at the Lord's own table where there should be no divisions at all. And so now we're just moving on to a new section. And so we're beginning here in chapter 12, but really chapter 12 through 14 all make one big section about, um, well, we'll talk about this a little bit more. We can call them spiritual gifts um, if you want, but we need to know exactly what we mean by that. Um, so anyway, I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag too much. Sure, sure. So. That, that's good. That's good. So just thinking about the way that Paul was setting the stage for this part of the epistle already back in chapter one, which was a long time ago, it seems like, in our study, I guess my, my, my thought or question and I'm not sure how to answer this, but what what happens if Paul just like jumps from chapter one to chapter twelve? What what what's the foundation that he's been laying by going through everything before he gets to what is a pretty big topic? As you said, it's going to be chapters twelve through fourteen. How do, how does all that really set the stage for this conversation in chapters twelve through fourteen? Right. No, that's a really good question. I'm not sure how to answer it throughout the entire book, but I I think we can definitely pick up on um, chapters one and chapter two where Paul talks about the message of the cross. You know, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it's the, you know, it's the power of God and that, uh, you know, but, but God's, this is foolishness to the world, but to us, we can see that it's the wisdom of God. And so I think that message of the cross is foundational at every step as he's addressing their disunity. And I think that's going to be manifestly clear here as well. And so the one thing that we can never read with any of these passages especially here in chapter 12, is that Paul's not just taking up a new topic because what, what we'll end up doing is we end up then uh, kind of just, you know, grazing as if like, oh, here's where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And that's, if that's all we get out of this, I think we're really missing the bigger point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every time we do go on to what seems to be a, quote, a new section and Paul even indicates that there is a new section of sorts in the way that verse 1 begins, where he mm-hmm. you know, introduces, hey, here's something else I want you to know. Even as we've done that, though, there's been plenty of carryover from the previous section. And I know in our part of chapter 12, the language of the body of Christ isn't quite as present. It'll show up later in chapter 12, but that connects us back to chapter 11, the body of Christ present in the sacrament. So there's there's plenty of connections within these, quote, sections, and I appreciate you bringing us back to the, the foundation of it all, the preaching of the cross. Christ has been crucified. So without that, I guess Paul doesn't, he doesn't deal with the root problem there in Corinth. He might give them an answer that they want to hear, but he hasn't really taught them what they need in the, in the fullness of, the, of Christian theology. Right. I mean, because in many ways, all of these things are actually symptoms of a much greater issue. The division, I mean, even to some extent, the divisions themselves are actually not the major malady. And so I'm kind of like a good doctor. I'm certainly a good pastor. You know, St. Paul is, I think, properly diagnosing. And he's saying, okay, yes, this is definitely an issue, right? I mean, you know, when, when somebody has a, I don't know, a you know, when they've got an infection in their arm, but it might be caused by something else. Yes, you treat the infection, no doubt about it. 
but you also want to treat the underlying cause as well. And I think that's what we're really seeing. We're sort of seeing, you know, Paul as pastor brilliantly here in, in 1 Corinthians. And so we're just going to see a dimension of that. He's moving on to a new symptom. Absolutely. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That is our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Johnson, before we get to the, the matter of spiritual gifts, as the ESV translates, I just briefly want to point out the way that Paul introduces this section. I don't want you to be uninformed. So he, he wants the Corinthians to know things. And I do think that's that's just a helpful reminder or particularly elsewhere where he talks about knowledge that, you know, yeah, sure, knowledge puffs up, love builds up, but knowledge in and of itself isn't the enemy. It's the way that, that knowledge is to be used. So he wants them to know things here. And I just just seeing that I think is a, a helpful, keeping this whole epistle in context. Right. Uh, you know, our Lord would not have us ignorant about his things. Because like, I think a real key distinction there that you were already hinting at with the other Corinthians is it's not even just, it's not that knowledge in general is, is a problem, but you have to follow that up with knowledge about what knowledge through whom. And he's going to kind of comment on that, or he comments on that a, a bit about, well, <laughs> the knowledge about idols and paganism. I mean, this is, this is demonic knowledge really. And that's what he, he talks about in, um, in uh, first Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, Hey, listen, these things aren't really gods, but what you're actually ending up sacrificing to are not real gods, but demons instead. And so it's not even just a matter of knowledge as this vague general idea, but specifically knowledge um, about God. And it kind of makes me think, uh, my family and I are doing, uh, we're going through Proverbs right now in our devotions. And uh, I'm always reminded about how much it talks about both knowledge and wisdom in all of that, but that it's, it's never this, generic sense of just like, well, I'm filling my head with facts, right? And I've got, I know all these things, but that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this is a very particular kind. And the only wisdom, true wisdom, and only true knowledge we had is the one found in the Lord, not these pagan idols. Yeah. So, so knowledge is not bad, but he's going to teach us what that knowledge is and then how to put it to use. Right. Now, the knowledge that he wants to impart here in chapter 12, again, as the ESV translates it, is concerning spiritual gifts. Now, in most ESV translations, at least I'm looking in the Lutheran Study Bible here, there's a footnote even here that spiritual gifts maybe isn't 
quite the right way to understand this. So help us into this, Pastor Johnson, because I think this will play an important part in our conversation. Right. And I mean, the spiritual gifts isn't necessarily a wrong translation, but it's probably a little too narrow. If you, um, what might be a little bit more accurate is something more like spiritual things, or that is, you know, things uh, of the spirit, matters of the spirit, you know. Um, uh, now, later on, I mean, given the context that he's going to specifically talk about things as gifts, right? Um, it makes some sense to kind of read back into it. Oh, well, that's what he's talking about. But the word he uses is broader, though. And I think that's important, too, because I think that helps us um, avoid the fallacy that, like, oh, Paul's going to give us these, you know, just these inventories of, uh, of all the gifts that you can possibly have. Like, geez, like uh, St. Paul's giving us the uh, the Sears wish book. I'm uh, dating myself here, right? Um, <laughs> it's Amazon that, now. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. It's a, Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's giving us the, the list of all the Amazon, uh, you know, all the, uh, the Amazon bestsellers, right? No, that's, that's not the point. The real, the point is, I guess if you were to maybe translate it a little bit differently is what you do is if you're going to keep the, the gifts, you highlight or you bold or you italicize the spiritual part that is of the Holy Spirit, because all the next stuff he's going to comment about is, well, where do these things come from? Where, you know, um, because the fact that they originate in the spirit as opposed to idols is what really makes all the difference. Yeah, I, I like things of the spirit or matters of the spirit, and I, I like putting it in that in that form of the genitive for all the reasons that you're talking about, and also just because of the way that the word spiritual in and of itself is heard in our context today. Oftentimes the word spiritual is a rather vague word that is often used to mean things that I sort of feel inside of me in ways that I can't describe. They're right. usually not physical. Right, and right. When it, Paul it uses does the often word, get used as just the opposite or the um, or the complement to physical. There's, you know, and it kind of illuminates this sort of unspoken duality to the universe. Like, well, we just divide everything between spiritual and physical. And that's right. not the way the Bible talks. You know, because our physical bodies are indeed spiritual bodies. It's not kind of an either or. But anyway, no. Well, and, that, and that's why I think this—the uh, way you're you're helping us to see the broader impact of what Paul is talking about here—is helpful in a number of respects. I've when I when I talk about spiritual, I always want people to see the word spirit within that. So, for us, spiritual things are that which come from the Holy Spirit. It's about the the source of this gift. Precisely. Yeah. Okay, so concerning these spiritual gifts, the, the matters of the Spirit, the things worked by the Spirit, Paul wants the Corinthians to be informed. He wants them to be knowledgeable. And the first thing that he wants them to know is, well, the difference between idolatry—he's going to go back to the matter of idolatry and the true worship of God— the role right. of the Spirit in this. Uh, take us into verses 2 and 3. Right. Oh, it, these are just so rich. We could probably spend the whole time talking about those. But I want to draw your attention to this contrast between mute and speaking. He says that you were led astray to mute idols. But um, then he talks about speaking in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. And so you've got this great contrast that, you know, these idols are... You know, they can't talk, right? Isaiah talks about this, and he's even sort of commented about this a bit, you know, that these idols are really nothing burgers, right? Uh, that that in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, but that 
that in contrast to that, it's the Holy Spirit who actually speaks. And, um, and so it kind of, he then articulates the, these two, this pair of truths in verse three. He, he, he talks about, you know, so cursing and blessing. And so first he starts off with a negative. Um, he says, uh, you know, nobody can, uh, who's speaking in the spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed. In other words, it's a, it's a non-starter. It's totally un- impossible. You can't have the spirit and curse Jesus. Why? Because the spirit commends and confesses Jesus. It would be, it's a, it's antithetical is the fancy pants word for it. Um, but then he flips around and says, okay, well, let's talk about the positive side. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. And this is this little phrase is tremendously important for us um, because it really helps, it articulates in a very simple, almost deceptively simple way about the theology of the Spirit and about our theology of faith as well. And so when he says no one can say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord is generally recognized as being the one of the very first of the Christian creeds. I mean, it's right. It's only, it's tremendously short, right? In English, three words long. Um, but to say that Jesus is Lord is a is a profound statement of belief that, if you think about it, could get themselves in a lot of trouble. I'll talk about that in a second. Because to say Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not your Lord, or Herod is not your Lord, or all these other, you know, whatever the, the earthly ruler is not your Lord, or for that matter, any other thing that you would swear allegiance to Jesus has precedence over. In other words, it's kind of a way of articulating the very first commandment. Um, so to say Jesus is Lord is to make confession. And to make that most fundamental confession can only happen by the Holy Spirit. Um, but um, I'm, pro- I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Um, let me go back to the cursing again, though. Sure. Because there's a, a lot of important things to say about that. Um, first of all, we need to understand that cursing doesn't just mean having a foul mouth. Cursing has a more specific uh, definition back then, and that is to speak against someone, and specifically, you know, speak against Jesus would be to denounce him. Um, in fact, your, uh, you know, our, our audience here may may know that the, uh, the history of, about this in the early church, that this is how the, um, when, when there were widespread persecutions of Christians, this is how they tried to uh, basically out the Christians. Um, in fact, there's this really famous uh, letter from uh, Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan. Uh, this is kind of uh, just a little bit after the turn into the second century. So like 110, 115, somewhere around there. And it's it's fascinating. It's so detailed. And in it, um, Pliny the Younger says, um, well, here's how you root the Christians out. Uh, what you do is you have them sacrifice to the emperor and you have them curse Jesus. And he said, any true Christian can't curse the name of Jesus. And I remember these these are not Christians. These these are pagan rulers trying to kill the Christians. But but they've got they sort of they articulate the thought theology exactly right, but in the worst possible way. Um that they understand um that that uh anybody who's filled by the spirit, it would be it would be anathema for them. It'd be unthinkable for them to to curse Jesus at the same time. And so he said that's kind of how you can tell who's who and and um 
there's a similar story um, with the uh, with Polycarp. Uh, if you remember, Polycarp is uh, at least as tradition holds it, one of the very last uh, Christians um, living who had any contact with the disciples. He was uh, he was the um, uh, disciple of John the disciple, and um, and when they finally got him at like age eighty six, and you kind of just wonder like why on earth if he's if he's avoided this long, why would they bother getting him when he's an old man? Yeah. But you know the Romans come and they basically say, hey, we're going to kill you, and um, and and there's this famous quote uh, from him. He says, eighty six years have I served him, that's Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Because they asked him to curse Jesus. And he says, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. He's done me no wrong. How could I do him wrong? And so it's such a, I think such a vivid example. Um, And obviously this is all after St. Paul has written this, but you wonder how much of this was already perhaps going on, or at least the seeds of it were going on, even at the time of Paul. Yeah, thinking about the the nature of what it means to to say Jesus is accursed and to mean it. It's in in this section Paul is not just saying about uttering certain words or sounds, but to speak these things and and mean those things, to believe those things that you're speaking. That nature of of what it means to curse Jesus and not being led by the Holy Spirit. That brings to my mind the text from the Gospels where the I think it's Pharisees scribes they come to Jesus and they're they're accusing him of being in league with Satan, yeah. and they say he's casting out demons by Satan, and and it's in that context that Jesus speaks about sinning against the Holy Spirit, and I think that I mean so, what the Pharisees, what the scribes are doing there in saying that Jesus is in league with the devil, that would right. be an example of cursing Jesus and so rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit that would right. who would bring you to faith. No, and that's such a good example. I'm glad you brought it up. I had not. I was not immediately thinking of that, but I believe it's in that same passage um, that he kind of articulates the same understanding as Paul does. He says, hey, how can the prince of the demons drive out demons? That doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, it's, it's like a cult, you know, it's like a friendly fire. I mean, why would, why would Satan be casting out his own minions? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus even says that. And I think it's operating or that, that observation articulates the same thing St. Paul is saying here. You know, um, you know, the, uh, you're, if, uh, how would I put this? If, if you're really filled with the spirit, you know, then it doesn't make any sense to curse Jesus because, you know, they're both on the same side, so to speak. I can't, I'm not sure if I can put it better than that. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. it does. It does. And then on the, on the flip side, if, if you are going to curse Jesus, then you are putting yourself in league with the mute idols, and right. also then the one who's behind the mute idols taking right. us the back to chapter 10, the demons. Right. Yeah. 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 So you Absolutely. see how these things, these things are building off of each other. One, I, I, wanna, I do want to let you talk more about this confession of Jesus as Lord and what this means concerning our confession of what faith is and the word of the Holy Spirit. Before I do that, though, I, you mentioned the contrast between the mute and the speaking, and that's definitely there. Another one I was, I was wondering about, I'm curious what you think, when Paul talks about being led astray to the mute idols, he says, however you were led. But then when it comes to this matter of, if you're going to say Jesus is Lord, there's only one way that you can do that, and that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if there's a bit of a contrast between this. You can be led astray in a multiple of ways toward idols, but the only way to be led to Jesus is through the Holy Spirit. 
Right. That gets me to thinking of, no, I think that's, that's pretty good observation. I also had not, um, I had not thought of that either. So I learned a ton of stuff on this Bible study too. (laughs) But it does remind me of Jesus's statement when he talks about, you know, narrow is the way to salvation, but broad is the way to destruction that, um, you know, or in the way that the Old Testament often talks about it, um, uh, walking, um, you know, uh, you know, walking in the way of the Lord, or even like the way Galatians five does, you know, talking about in step with the Spirit. That, in other words, it's not a lot of different paths. What's what's clearly implied there is that like it's a one narrow, uh, straight path that is the way of the Lord. But that you know, it sort of stands to reason then that if. Um, there's only one path. There's there's an infinite number of ways of falling off of that path, right? Uh, you can be going in any old direction, right? But there's only one right direction. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think, and even just thinking about the idea of, of one, so you're, we're together on this one path, confessing Jesus as Lord through the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet as this passage will continue, which we'll come to more later, there's going to be a diversity of gifts in that unity. So True. there is a... Yeah, and that's a that's a very striking thing to to keep in mind. So let's let's pick up more of this conversation on the other side of the break, especially when it comes to what faith is and the work of the Holy Spirit in that regard. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Jeremiah Johnson this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 11th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we've been talking about especially 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 3, and getting to the positive aspect that those who say Jesus is Lord do so only in the Holy Spirit. We want to talk a little bit about the work of the Holy Spirit in this regard, what faith is, and for Lutherans, the, the place to start is the small catechism, I would think, which is the explanation to the third article. So start there and then have at it. Right. I, because, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to take us maybe one step back a little bit further. Okay. Um, because it, I think in order to appreciate this, we have to really ask ourselves, well, then um, where, does, where does faith actually come from? Um, and, um, and who actually, who actually does the believing and, and how is the believing done? Because this is, this is a big question that divides Christianity. Um, 
And um, so that's where the third article comes in. And it answers one of those questions with um, tremendous clarity. And that is, how is it that we can possibly believe? Um, Luther says, and I believe this is, of course, in concert with the scripture as well, that um, it's only by the Holy Spirit that there's no there's no part of you that can initiate this process. Um, and so that's why Luther says in, in the small catechism, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or by my own strength. In other words, I don't, ha I don't have enough uh, capacity in my brain and I don't have you know, reason enough of strength in my body or my spirit to do this. In other words, I could not possibly believe apart from the gift of the Spirit. There's no way it could happen, right? But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me of his gifts, sanctifies and keeps me in the true faith. In other words, if there's one person that we can say is responsible for this, it's not me. It's actually the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, that runs aground of, you know, um, any number of other theologies, probably the most uh, the most famous one that people may not know the name for, but they often hear like the friends and other Christians talking about is what's called Arminianism. And um, this is, of course, from uh, Jacob Arminius. Um, I think it was uh, mid, I want to say mid-1600s, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, and he basically popularized, as he was not the first person to say this, but he really popularized and formalized the idea that basically, um, if I believe it's because I chose Jesus and because I, you know, it's my action, my initiative, my power, my strength to believe. And in the modern manifestation of this is when you hear people talking about, well, this is when I gave my heart to Jesus or I chose Jesus or I made a decision for Jesus. It's most of the time people mean all the same thing when they say that. But that runs aground of 1 Corinthians 12 because I can't say Jesus is Lord. I, I mean, I might be able to utter those words, but I cannot believe and actually trust those things if the Holy Spirit did, was not in me working in me. Um, apart from him, it's no go, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, so this is what we might hear in more modern terms called decision theology is right. another label that sometimes gets placed upon this. And the, the practical effect of, of getting this right is where the, the certainty lies, where the mm -hmm. foundation of faith is. If, it, if it's all about me and my decision, then my, my foundation of trust becomes that, rather than my foundation of trust being the actual confession, Jesus is Lord, I'm right. suddenly placing my focus on whether or not I said that or believed it or made that decision. And it's and when it comes to the, the matter of certainty, then, decision theology, which again is theologically wrong, also on a very practical level, leaves you without any certainty, right. whereas the true theology, and this shouldn't surprise us, the true theology gives you that ground of certainty because you're, you're focused on that actual confession, Jesus is Lord. Right. It's one of the reasons why a number of uh, the members here at our church um, who are coming from those backgrounds, you know, many of them have commented to me about the inevitable despair that it would lead them to because in some of the churches where they were, it, um, you know, you, you have to sort of prove the authenticity of, uh, you know, of your commitment to Jesus then. Because if it's, if faith is on your shoulders, then proving it is on your shoulders too. Um, and so, you know, well, have I served, you know, have I been a faithful enough 
parent or have I served in enough ways? Have I given enough money to the church? And it's a never ending, it's, it's, it's a rat race. It's like a hamster wheel. I mean, you know, it never really ends because how have you ever established yourself as providing enough evidence for your, for your election and, and the faith that you claim? And it's, it's a, it's a non-winning proposal. Yeah. So that, that really gets, gets us through the first three verses. Although, as you said, we could spend the, the whole time talking about these. I do think it is important, though, that we keep these verses foundational, especially as Paul then will begin to move into what we might more classically call spiritual gifts. We need to have this foundation that the work of the Holy Spirit, the thing that the Holy Spirit is about, is giving us faith in Jesus— and all these other than gifts or the ways that he works are founded on that. And I, I find that very helpful, again, in our context, in which sometimes you'll have groups of Christians today that will talk a lot about spiritual gifts, but not talk about them in the way that Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 12. Mm-hmm. I think one of the antidotes to that is keeping this, if I can say it this way, the spiritual gift of faith in Christ as central to everything else that comes next. Right. I think a really good place to talk about that, if you want to jump into that now, is um, is actually all the way down in verse 11, sure. where he says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Um, this gets... Okay, so what do we do? Do we talk about... You know, we could probably talk two different directions now. Do we go to... Uh, to uh, cessationism, or do uh, we just let's 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 wait? You want to save that? Let's, okay. Let's 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 work through because I, I think there's there's maybe a bit of a, a bookends here with your bringing up verse right. eleven. I think verses four through six serve as the the front end of it's a very similar thing that he starts and ends the section. Sometimes the the gifts themselves are what draw our attention. Right. I think we really need to pay attention to what's on the ends. Right. So let's, four to six so and then eleven. Let's touch on verse eleven and then we'll go back to four to six and kind of go through those as a list. Sounds um, good. And he, in verse eleven, he says all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, which is exactly the point that you were bringing up. Um, that yes, not only is Christian confession only able to be done by the Holy Spirit, but even all these gifts, which the Corinthians, at least it seems to be implied and we'll find out later, are making too big of a deal out of, even those, those are being powered by the Holy Spirit. You can't take credit for them. They're from him anyway, right? Just like we can't take credit for our faith, nor whatever extraordinary gifts that are being manifest, they can't take credit for them anyway. It really, it really reminds me of St. Paul's earlier statement, like, you know, I'm not going to boast in anything except for yeah. Jesus Christ, my Lord, right? Not myself. But also, I think another key observation is that second part of, uh, that latter part of verse 11. And all the members of the body, or I'm sorry, jumped, my eyes jumped. Who apportions to each individually as he wills. So in other words, this is entirely up to the Holy Spirit. It's at his discretion that he gives these which it does actually, um, which does directly speak to to some of the more um, modern uh, challenges with the you know gifts of the spirit because sometimes they will be almost demanded that they happen in the church. But we can bring that up a little bit later. Why don't we jump into some of these um, some of these particular gifts that he uh, well he says before we do that take us yeah. take us to verses four to six, which I do think oh, right. serve as a bit of a bookend. Again, Absolutely. on the front side to what he says in verse 11. Right. Four through six, in some ways, are all almost, they're almost, 
saying almost exactly the same thing. He's just doing variants on the same, same idea. And so he says there's varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And so it's the same contrast that there's, there's a diversity and yet there's a unity. The diversity may be in how the things the Holy Spirit um, engages us in um, look very different, right? I mean, you know, we can even say, I think we all sort of know this, especially from the angle of vocation. Um, it's not exactly what Paul's talking about, but I think there's some application here that, you know, your life and my life are going to look somewhat different because, you know, even though we're both pastors, you've got a different family than I have. You have a different parish than I do. You serve in a different place. You have unique things. And, and I mean, all the more than for our own parishioners, you know, the, uh, the, the service of a guy who's writing, um, you know, who's doing legal work for a bank is going to look very differently than the guy who's an electrician. And yet, with all these diversities of, um, you know, vocation, um, the same Lord is both animating and um, is being glorified through them. And so, likewise, when we're talking about more specifically what we would call these, these, um, these gifts— yeah, there's a lot of variety. Not everybody, in other words, we're not all robots in the church. Not everybody gets all the same things, um, whether they be mundane looking or spectacular looking, because we're all in the same spirit. So same spirit, same Lord, same God who empowers them in everyone. Yeah. And so that's the key thing he's driving home, that as we go ahead and kind of tick off these, um, uh, all of these, you know, these various gifts that he you know, St. Paul was probably seeing manifest in the, uh, in the church that, that they not lose sight of the fact that it's the same, same Lord giving them all. Now, just because you, you, you said the, the progression, he says the same spirit, then the same Lord, and then the same God. Right. As, as I was laying that out, that sounded very Trinitarian. To oh me. yeah. I think it totally okay. is. Okay. I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, there's a lot of commentary about how this is paralleled with other, some of Paul's others articulation of the Trinity. And it doesn't say, no, it doesn't say father, son, and Holy spirit, right. but I think it sure seems to be a strong nod to it. So I, I think, I mean, especially again, in the context of this epistle back in chapter eight, where he uh, referenced Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema. And he, he said, there is right. one God, the father of us all and one Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Right, right. Well, you and have he's both just, of those, and now you have the Spirit too. Right, right. It well, he like says, the, yeah, yeah. He but, says Spirit, and, and remember, the Spirit is the one who uh, allows us to confess Him as Lord, right? Jesus as right. Lord, and He says, "Same Lord." And of course, we we know just from two verses prior. Well, that's Jesus, right? And the same God who empowers them all in, in everyone. I think we just kind of naturally fill in. Okay, well, there's one person missing here from the from the Trinity. This must right. be re reference to the Father. So, right. Yeah. So right. I, I don't think it's it's not unreasonable to read it that way. So then again, before we get into the, the actual list of the gifts that he names here, verse seven. Your listeners are going to think we're never going to get there. <laughs> we're never going to get there. The part that everybody really wants to hear about is the part that Paul doesn't actually talk as much about. <laughs> yeah, maybe we think he does. Sure. So. So verse 7 gives us the purpose then. So to yeah. each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, but here's the reason, for the common good. Right. So talk to us about that. Right. And I think he is, Paul is in many ways just doing what he's been already hinting at already all throughout the entire book, is that we've already seen that the, um, the Corinthians seem both petty and competitive at the same time. And he's really kind of nipping that. Because it's not for your individual ego. It's not so that you can prove that you're holier than everybody else. But it's it's for the common good. And um, I probably should have looked this up, but I have a feeling this is probably 
Um, let me pull up my Greek here. I'm guessing it's probably related to the word that we have for, for communion. Is it? Is it? No, it's not. That would have been really great, though, if it was. So anyway, but the point is, it's still the same, is that it's being for the common good means that you're looking to your neighbor, that you're not in competition with them, you're serving them. Well, and okay, so this I think is, is really important, especially as we perhaps think about some modern applications and the way that spiritual gifts sometimes end up dividing churches. Oh, yeah. Just the way they're talked about end up dividing Absolutely. churches. And Paul says it's actually the exact opposite is intended. Right, right. Yeah, you want to talk about that or you want yeah, to talk, talk about a little bit eight about through ten? Since we're, here, sure. since we're here at the common good, talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think this is a, a key thing because we... Sometimes people will think about, oh, what's my spiritual gift as a way to, right. it seems, to elevate themselves. Right. And Paul says, I mean, and I, the way at least I think Paul might respond to that is, okay, you've got the gift, but yeah. you're not usually, you're actually not usually, you're not actually using it in accordance right. with the Spirit who gave it. Right. Because if you're using it in accordance with Spirit, it's not about you then. Uh, just to put it bluntly, you know, I had. Um, especially in my previous parish, I came in contact a lot more with a, with a number of Pentecostals in town. And it was interesting. I mean, just to be able to try to speak as charitably as possible, I did see the, unfortunately, I think what has sometimes become the stereotype of the, what you might call the competitive Pentecostal who, who wants to prove how, you know, uh, how full of the Lord they are by, you know, manifesting all these gifts. But I also met Pentecostals who were much more, cautious and thoughtful about this as well and so it does it does really run the gamut but i mean the but but what is dangerous ultimately is to uh is any time that these gifts and, and i mean even the very nature of the fact that they are um you know saint paul actually calls them um you know he calls them uh what how did i translate that gifts of grace that's actually kind of what the, it's a compound word. And I think that's a, a legitimate way to translate this. These are grace-filled gifts, you know, um, meaning that number one, they're by grace. That is, you didn't earn them. And, but they also are for the grace of your neighbor as well. And I think which reiterates the idea, this is for, uh, you know, this is for the common good. And it kind of reminds me a little bit, I'm not making the direct application, but of in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about, um, you know, doing uh, works of charity and whatnot and how he uh, he's criticizing the religious leaders for making a big show of, of their almsgiving and their prayers and, um, you know, and their fasting. And Jesus says, listen, um, you know, don't make a big deal out of this because, it's not about you, and it's not about the praise that you can receive from man. And I think that's always what's what's dangerous is the, uh, are you doing this, you know, to sort of prove that you're a super Christian or, or even to assuage your conscience? I mean, because I think this is maybe perhaps the case for, uh, for some people I've met that they might find in these gifts a... Uh, an assurance that like, oh yes, I really am, I really am being a good Christian. I really am one of the elect. I really am. And the thing is, you know, don't look to those things. Uh, you know, you look to Christ and his, his statement about you. Um, yeah. Well, and so, that, that takes us back to what we were saying earlier with the, the first three verses that it, right. it's not about your decision to follow Jesus. That's not where your foundation is, but the foundation is again on this confession Jesus is Lord. Right. And so a, a similar thing can happen if we if we put the wrong focus on what these gifts are and what the intention is 
in the Spirit, giving them as he so wills, according to his discretion. So with, with those comments in mind, let's take a look at what Paul does mention here in these, in these intervening verses, verses 8 to 10. I mean, again, this is another section we could have spent the whole time on. Right. What, what kinds of things do we need to, to see in these, these things that he lists here? Right. Well, the first thing you should notice is the order he puts them in, because the, the things that might seem the most spectacular end up being towards the bottom. Um, and I think, I can't prove this for sure, but I have a strong suspicion that Paul does that very intentionally, especially with um, when he finally gets around to confronting them with their abuse, because in chapter 14, sorry, letting the cat out of the bag, my apologies to whatever pastor is doing it. He's, uh, but he's going to be uh, uh, confronting them with their abuse of the, uh, you know, speaking in tongues. And um, he doesn't list that until the very end. And so the first thing he lists off is the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. And I think, honestly, I mean, let's, let's be, like, if we're ranking how spectacular the gifts of the spirit look, I'm pretty sure... I would not put wisdom and knowledge as being like the top two most impressive, you know, gifts of the spirit, right? But but um, it reminds me of uh, of St. Paul's statement in in Romans. You know, um, you know, how can anyone believe unless a, a preacher is sent, right? How can they believe unless some, they they hear the preaching of the gospel? I'm paraphrasing. And so, likewise, the utterance of wisdom, and right in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, the utterance of knowledge. And in many ways, you know, knowledge is um, so clearly connected with the person of Jesus Christ. Kind of like what you were mentioning before, you know, these idols, um, you know, we are being led into knowing not just things, but we're um, being led into knowing um, the very nature and person of the Trinity, specifically through Jesus Christ and his suffering and death for us. And this is the kind of knowledge that we're talking about. And of course, once again, according to the same spirit. And notice he even says same spirit. It's not like we're getting these, you know, unlike, I'm not sure if Paul's intentionally doing this, but it, it makes me think of the contrast in my own mind about how the pagans worked, where they would look to various gods for various dimensions of you know, of their blessing and existence, right? I mean, this is this was true all across the pagan world. You know, the, this is the God, you know, this is the God of war and this is the God of wisdom. This is the God of justice. And you and you essentially, like, for lack of a better term, play the field with the, uh, with the gods, depending on what you need. But here, by the same spirit, um, we have this repeated over and over and over again that, like, listen, you're not, we're not shopping at a mall here um, you know, they're all coming from the same place. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And, and again, according to his will, as, right. as he says there in verse 11. Right. Now, yeah. you you mentioned, just so that we do bring it up, because you, you brought it up, the, the word cessationism when oh, it yeah. comes to these gifts. We've, we're about seven minutes here, just so you know we can use our time well. What is cessationism? How does it apply to this this conversation? Okay, so it usually, the question becomes, um, is usually starts something like this. Um, we saw a lot of really miraculous stuff going on in the New Testament era, and then we notice even later on, there doesn't seem to be quite as many miraculous things going on. What gifts? Um, that's basically the, the, the beginning of the question, because even the ancients recognize this. I've got a couple of quotes for you uh, later on, but this is, this is very much a, 
um, or you know, a, a genuine question today. And I, I do not fault anybody who asks it because I think it's a, it is a legitimate question. Just depends on how you answer it. You know, I have a, you know, a very dear friend of mine who, who notices, Hey, there's a lot of, you know, the disciples, they do a lot of healing and, uh, you know, and other miraculous things. Um, doesn't it seem reasonable that if we are given the gift of the same spirit, shouldn't we be able to do the same things? Well, now we've already kind of talked about the first step in recognizing the potential fallacy there is, well, Spirit gives it the way he wants. And so we become, we can't be prescriptive about it. You can't say, well, Holy Spirit, you did this for Peter, so you got to do it for me. Doesn't promise to do that for, you know, he does not promise that that I can bless handkerchiefs that will fall on people and will heal them. I mean, St. Peter may have gotten that blessing. I was not given that blessing. And it's not a universal thing for all believers. So the, the fancy word cessationism simply means um, have it refers to have these gifts ceased. And there's a couple of different variations within that. And so on the two poles are like, um, on the one hand, like, nope, cessationism, you know, th things have not stopped. There's still just as many works of, of miracles and healings and driving out demons and all the other stuff today um, as there ever was. Um, but on the flip side, on the other side is, is you might call like a hard cessationism. Like, nope, that was just for the early church and we are done full stop. We will never see another like miracle again. Um, and let the cat out of the bag. We've always been, you know, Lutherans have always had a little bit of a mediating position in, in those terms in the sense that we don't want to, on the one hand, <laughs> we don't want it to prescribe things that the spirit somehow has to do just because he did them in the New Testament era, Right. Um, if we don't have a, 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 an enduring promise that this is what the Spirit's going to do in every age, we don't get to tell the Spirit how he manifests his things. Now, but the, on the flip side, we also probably shouldn't tell the Spirit that he can't either. And so that, that puts us in a peculiar position where we have to kind of just do a lot more describing in many ways. And so just very briefly... Um, you know, in the second century, you got uh, two good examples, both Justin Martyr and Irenaeus do talk about the, uh, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, and they'll even list a few of them, like prophecy, speaking in different languages, interpretation, healing, exorcisms, and the such. But then, not even quite 200 years later, Chrysostom and Augustine talk about the cessation of these gifts. Now, on one level, on one hand, Augustine actually talks about the diminishing of them, but they haven't totally disappeared. Um, but Chrysostom pretty much just says they're they're done. Um, you know, I, uh, he actually says it in a sermon, like on a Sunday morning. He says, "Yeah, these these gifts are they're over. They were for they were for the um, edification of the church. Um, you know, and it's very inception, but not really any longer. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah." The, the thing that I appreciate about the, the answer that you gave is that the, the focus on, well, what has God promised? Because right. when it comes to what can God do, he's God, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not allowed to limit him. But the, the focus that we should always have is, well, what has he promised to do? And that's where we, we need to hang our hat. Precisely. So then it, when it comes to these, you know, especially the more spectacular gifts, has he promised to do these in every time and every place? I don't, I don't see that in the scriptures. And, but then on the other hand, has he promised that he's stopped them? I don't see that either, which I think is where the, the mediating position comes in. And so that when we think again about the work of the Holy Spirit, well, what has he promised to do? Well, from this text, he has promised to lead people to the confession, Jesus is Lord. 
so that where we see that confession going out, we know that the Holy Spirit is at work with his gifts in that place. On the flip side, if that confession isn't being spoken, then we know that the Spirit isn't working there, or at least he's not, he's being rejected in, in some way, shape, or form. When it comes to, again, the gifts of the Spirit, that, that purpose, that is it being used for the common good? That's another key thing that we I think we need to pay attention to. The, the Spirit does promise where these gifts are being given by him, they are going to be used for the common good. That's his intent. So that when that's not happening, we're right, I think, to recognize problems. So again, we want to keep our focus on what has he promised to do and hang our hat there rather than on speculation on our part. Precisely. So we got about two minutes here, Pastor Johnson. Help us to, to wrap. We've talked about a variety of things in the text, <laughs> but but concerning the same spirit throughout, hopefully. Help us to, to wrap things up on this text from 1 Corinthians 12 today. Yeah, I mean, in some ways you've already done. You did a really fine job yourself, and so I'll try to see <laughs> if I can add anything to that. But it's, it's really, the key thing here is it's not, this passage really isn't so much about the gifts. It's about the giver. It's about the spirit. And any time we lose track of that, you're exactly right. We've, that is a, a, a warning sign right there. It's a red flag going up. And we're going to see this unfolding, continue to unfold in the rest of the, uh, the chapters here to come. Because um, especially in terms of the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, the rest of the chapter is going to take us into, well, you know, what does it mean for the common good? Who are we in relationship to each other? And so how is it that we can also serve one another? But ultimately, I think chapter 13 is really going to be a high point for all of this because we will recognize the Spirit will do nothing except um, lead us in love to one another. And so not to steal the, uh, the, the thunder there, but that's how, how ultimately we will see this manifest. And when we don't see uh, love being manifest, that's probably even the bigger red flag that we got to back up and we got to reevaluate how is it that we are understanding these gifts given uh, by the Lord through the Spirit. Um, and that, that if, if love is not at the center, serving one another in, in all generosity, that, um, you know, yeah, something is fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 11. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Jesus is Lord. That is the central confession of Christianity, and it is through the work of the Holy Spirit that you and I have been brought to confess and believe that Christian faith. By the work of the same Spirit, he continues to keep us in that faith and build us up together in Christ's church through his work in the ways that he wills. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 12, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.